KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Of course, today, impeachment is our number one topic. But later in the show, Alan Minsky of Progressive Democrats of America will talk about the $15 minimum wage and about reviving American manufacturing. And our film critic, Ella Taylor, will review The Mauritanian, a new film based on the real-life case of a detainee at Guantanamo who was released finally after 14 years. But first, Donald Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate, his second, of course, it's underway now, and of course he's charged with inciting the insurrection on January 6th that sought to stop Congress from certifying Joe Biden as the winner of the Electoral College. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him tonight in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we are recording this on Wednesday evening at the end of a long day of harrowing footage shown in the Senate. I think everybody who watched was shaken by what we saw. The Capitol security camera footage of senators running to safety, the body cam footage from the cops showing intense hand-to-hand fighting, the police tapes of appeals for help. Let's talk about today's events in the Trump impeachment trial? Well, I think there were there were two themes that emerged today. Uh, both of them, I thought, presented uh, exceptionally well. I think the House prosecutors are all very effective uh, presenters of the case. And the, the case was expanded today. The idea that Trump had incited the mob Uh, was expanded beyond the speech he gave at the rally immediately before the attack on the Capitol to really what he'd been saying for the past half year, at least, that he, uh, the only way he could lose would be voter fraud. I mean, he said this around the time he began to fall behind Joe Biden in the polls in the middle of the year. I mean, he was running even before the coronavirus, and then he started running behind. And so we started sounding this note early on, And of course, after uh, November 7th, when the networks uh, and the AP and everyone declared uh, that Biden was the winner, he sounded it almost to the exclusion of everyone else. Uh, So the notion that he incited the mob was expanded to what the prosecution, I think, rightly called the repetition of his making what what they call the the big lie. And, you know, they demonstrated again and again, not only how he did it and, and, and how he pressured everyone in the chain of approving election results, in many ways, probably illegally, Georgia may well indict him for what, what he tried to do to the vote count there. They showed, you know, how this uh, cumulatively riled up his supporters who believe this. And it really showed, I think, a, in a rather devastating way how this incitement had been going on very effectively with his own base for almost half a year. The problem is that a good chunk of the jury sitting in on this trial, Republican senators, were complicit in spreading the big lie themselves. Very few of them accepted Biden's victory on or around November 7th, uh, which put the House prosecutors in a kind of peculiar position Uh, They wanted to find some way to distinguish 
between uh, what Donald Trump did and what all the senators who said, well, I'm not ready to recognize the victory yet. And honestly, the Republicans have been sounding the voter fraud note for, for decades uh, as a way simply of, of, of passing laws that make it difficult for people who might vote Democratic to vote. So the, the, the House prosecutors had to kind of find a way to separate out uh, the Republicans sitting in judgment on this trial uh, from the same indictment that they were leveling at Donald Trump. Uh, I noted one of them praised uh, Mitch McConnell for acknowledging uh, uh, Biden's victory uh, right after the Electoral College ratified it on uh, December 14th. Well, you know, that was a month and a week after the election had been decided. But, you know, they, they came to a, a, a nice way to parse it. They said that even the Republicans who on January 6th voted uh, against certifying the results in Arizona and Pennsylvania, they at least were still upholding their oath. The oath trusts Congress to certify or not the Electoral College results. Donald Trump, they said, uh, was not upholding his oath. And here I was the other direction in which they expanded the case. And I thought, even perhaps more effectively. That was to his dereliction of duty on the day of the riot. That as the riot was going on, essentially he did nothing to stop it and he alone could have stopped it. I can imagine when Trump's lawyers uh, get to make their case, I can imagine what they'll say to oppose the incitement part of, of, of the indictment. I'm not quite sure how they can quite get around the dereliction of duty part. They have to kind of look at what their client did and turn nothing into something. And from what we've seen so far of Trump's lawyers, that seems <laughs> to me to be a task that is well beyond their capacities. Well, yes. I, I want to do a little mea culpa here. I was wrong, along with a lot of our friends, in initially saying the Capitol Police uh, maybe were in cahoots with the mob that invaded, that they let them in, that they high-fived. There may have been a couple who, who did that, but the video footage shown today was showed that the police did a huge job of trying to protect the, yeah. the members of Congress, that it was violent, that they fought, they fought off the rioters for hours. It was violent, it was scary. The, the mob came close to, to getting Speaker Pelosi, Vice President Pence, Mitt Romney, and, uh, Charles Chuck Schumer, and Schumer. Yeah. Schumer. Yeah. There's these videos of Schumer running down the hall one direction, and then the police say, "No, you can't. That's not going to work." And he turns yeah. around and runs down the hall the other direction. Right. Um, so, for me personally, the biggest impact of today was how hard the police fought against this mob and how determined the mob was for hours to fight and keep fighting. And uh, in particular, they were looking for Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, and they were looking for Nancy Pelosi. The house managers, I believe they are called, did, yeah. I agree, did a wonderful job, especially a, a person I'd never even heard of before, Stacy Plaskett, who represents the Virgin Islands. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that would be a Jeopardy question no one could get. <laughs> who represents the Virgin Islands in Congress? No, they were all in their own way extremely effective. Joaquin Castro, David, David Cicilline, Ms. Plaskett from the Virgin Islands, they, they were all 
exceptionally effective. Also, Eric Swalwell from California, another person I'd never heard of before. He, uh, one of the great things about the Democrats is they have people of color, they have women, they have Latinos, they have Asian Americans. A lot of them are from California. Some of them are even from LA. Right. Uh, so we also got to see dare I call it the rainbow of the of the Democratic Party, but each of them made a different part of the case. Eric Swalwell emphasized his father was a is a cop, his younger brothers are cops. And he was a D he was an assistant DA. He was and he was an assistant DA. So and and uh, Stacey Plaskett emphasized the threat to Mike Pence, which in some ways is the most amazing, horrifying, alarming thing that Trump did. Mike Pence was a target of this mob for only one reason. In the past, we have never wondered what's the vice is the vice president going to go along with certifying the vote. It's been a purely ceremonial role. It was only because of Donald Trump that Mike Pence was identified as the person who could reverse the results of the election and, and keep Trump in office. And so he was the traitor to the mob, the mob was looking for him. And there is scary footage of Mike Pence, his wife, his kid being rushed down the stairs, surrounded right. by Secret Service men, the mob, you know, not very far behind them. And, and the House prosecutors made the point that Trump mentioned Pence, not friend, in a friendly manner, 11 times in his speech at the rally. And his first tweet of the day was going after, you know, was, was, bitching about Mike Pence, uh, even as uh, the Capitol uh, grounds had been breached. So and and they showed video of the rioters reading Trump's tweet about yes. Mike Pence over a bullhorn. Yeah. So the links, the links were drawn so powerfully. And yes. they, we didn't know this before. We'd never seen most of this footage before. And we certainly hadn't seen that before. No. No, I mean, they were exceptionally effective. And like I said, I think Trump's lawyers uh, will certainly go after the incitement on sort of narrow grounds that this doesn't really constitute incitement. But again, on the dereliction of duty, on his doing essentially nothing, while there were televised images that the entire nation was watching in real time of the mob running amok in the Capitol, I, I think that's actually the strongest part of their case. It is hard to imagine that the defense lawyers, uh, when they make their presentation, are going to stick with the argument they made in their written submission, where they said that the people who stormed the Capitol, quote, did so of their own accord and for their own reasons, that their actions, quote, were utterly inexcusable and deserve robust and swift investigation and prosecution, close quote. But this had nothing to do with Trump. This yeah, is what their they... own reason. I mean, their own reason was to stop the count and somehow get Trump elected. They, you know, they, they were chanting for Trump throughout this. Uh, so the notion that this was for their own reasons, you know, obscure grievance <laughs> about uh, some agricultural policy, I don't think so. So I think that'll be... Uh, a hard case to make. And the other argument that they made in, in their uh, response uh, brief was that when Trump spoke about fighting like hell, he used this in what they called a figurative sense. It was a metaphor familiar to all of us that, quote, 
could not be construed to encourage acts of violence. That's what the Trump lawyers wrote. Are they actually going to say that when they take oh, the? Oh, I'm sure uh, they will. But one of the thing, one of the things the prosecution made clear today was that there had been a previous demonstration of Proud Boys and Trump supporters in in D.C. on December December 12th. And uh, they were violent there, and, and it was perfectly clear that these were some of the folks who were in the crowd that, that Trump addressed. These are not people to whom the words keep fighting are metaphoric. You know, and the, the prosecutors, the managers also stressed the through line in everything Trump did after November 7th was going through every last way he could imagine to put pressure on, to make threats, to get the results overturned. And by the time Mike Pence issued a statement just before the Trump rally began on January 6th, that he was going to do his duty and not overturn the vote count, the only means left to Trump was storming the Capitol. Uh, now, I suppose his lawyers will say, well, they meant storm the Capitol peacefully. I know they're gonna say that, I don't know what they're going to say about his just sort of sitting there. And my favorite thing was the one call we know that he made to someone on Capitol Hill was calling the newly elected and utterly clueless uh, Tommy Tuberville, uh, who during the course of his campaign for the Senate proved unable to name the three branches of government <laughs> and urge him to uh, object to the certification of votes in more states. Clearly, he viewed Tuberville as kind of the low-hanging fruit among, uh, among the senators. And he did that while the riot was in progress. You know, he didn't even ask about what was going on on Capitol Hill. He made this call right as the Senate was being evacuated, but that was not the subject of the call. We have much more complete record now has been created and produced by the House impeachment managers so well document, documented with the video footage showing Trump's tweets and where, the timeline, the map of the Capitol, so, de so devastating. This is, for the public, this, this is indispensable and, and uh, we owe them a great debt of thanks. You have to wonder what it's like for the senators who've been so committed to supporting Trump to see the video of themselves fleeing, running, Senators running. How often do you see senators running, especially 50, 100 senators running? You have to wonder what this was like for them. to. They had never seen this video footage either. We're not the only ones. They'd, this is footage of themselves fleeing for their safety, uh, protected by the Capitol Police, who then go out and, and fight the rioters and are horribly injured. And, you know, one of them gets killed. I would think at least some of them would notice and feel some of what we're what we felt today. Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a line in the Maltese Falcon when he's about to turn the Mary Astor character over to the cops, uh, even though he's in love with her, and she says, "How can you do this?" And he says, in essence, "Well, I'll have some bad nights, but I'll get over it." <laughs> and I, I think that's pretty much sums up where the Republican senators are at. They'll have some bad nights, but they, they think their uh, electoral prospects depend on their acquitting Trump no matter what. And we were told before uh, today's harrowing footage that um, 
that this is political theater and that the Democrats are trying to divide the country and inflame partisan passions and uh, poison the cooperative spirit we need in a 50-50 Senate. I wonder if you have any comment on that argument. Yes, well, if anyone has seen any cooperative spirit from the Republicans on any Democratic legislation in the last 20 years, I would love to see it. By the way, though, it's great political theater. Uh, They're right about that. Uh, And I don't denigrate political theater. It's part of politics. It's part of forming public opinion. And Shakespeare would have trouble improving on the political theater we saw today. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org, where he posts daily reports on the impeachment proceedings. Harold, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Always good to be here, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Of course, right now we're preoccupied with impeachment, with the pandemic, with the pandemic relief bill, but we want to take a step back and look at the longer term problem of reviving American manufacturing. Talking about that is a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. And so we turn to Alan Minsky, well-known around here as the former KPFK program director, crucial part of this program for many years. Now he's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. It's a grassroots organization with ties to the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Alan, welcome back. Great to be here, John. Well, before we get to the long-term economic picture, I'd like to take up one issue about the short term, the $15 minimum wage that progressives have been talking about for many years, which has been endorsed by Biden, which has been put into the pandemic relief bill. Just remind us, what is the federal minimum wage right now? Less than half of that. It's $7.25. It's very easy to make a living on $7.25 an hour (laughs) if you have about 3,000 hours in a week. (laughs) Well, I understand that the Congressional Progressive Caucus under its chair, Pramila Jayapal, worked hard to keep the $15 minimum wage in the House bill for pandemic economic relief. That bill is emerging from committee, still subject to the whole House and then to the Senate. And in the Senate, Bernie Sanders has been working very hard on this bill for many, many years. How important is the $15 minimum wage for the progressive agenda? Oh, it's super important. Uh, As you may have heard, John, we have incredible um, maldistribution of wealth in our society. And this has been further exacerbated over the past year during the pandemic. The statistics that are available show that the top quarter of the population income earners have done pretty well. They've done and probably saved a lot of money too during the pandemic. The quarter below that, not so well. The quarter below that, worse. The bottom quarter, catastrophic, okay? And right now, we have working people unable to make ends meet. We have an epidemic of homelessness. And simply put, people are so underpaid for the labor they do at $7.25 an hour or anything below $15 an hour anywhere in the country, let alone the 
um, more expensive and you know more economically vibrant large metropolitan areas in the United States of America, like Southern California, where even fifteen dollars an hour is is inadequate. But across the country, you know, you're really talking about just living lifting uh, the minimum wage back up to the level close to the level it was adjusted for inflation throughout much of the post-war period in the United States of America. Since it's been set at 725, it has fallen way below where it used to be in, in uh, inflation-adjusted dollars. It's absolutely impossible to make ends meet on that kind of money, and it's essential. Now, it is also super popular with the public across the country. Um, and so, as always, three cheers for Pramila Jayapal, Great politician, great political organizer, and great work making sure that this was included. So why is it even a question of whether this could be in the bill? Well, there are a few reasons, but one of the main reasons is because um, they want to get the bills passed. And this is maybe a classic example of the Democrats um, negotiating against themselves uh, in advance. But the idea that the minimum wage statute could not get approved by the Senate parliamentarian and thus be available in a package that would be passed through reconciliation. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Um, through regular order, with the threat of the filibuster, right, uh, the, the bill would need 60 votes. But why take it out even before you try to pass it through regular order. Again, this is a problem with the Democrats negotiating against themselves in advance. This was epidemic during the Obama years. But let's say it can only go through the Senate, through the process called reconciliation, by which you don't need 60 votes to clear the filibuster, but on measures related to the federal budget, you only need 50 votes with Kamala Harris then providing the tie-breaking vote, and it would pass. The question is, is the minimum wage a federal budgetary issue? Well, Bernie Sanders, who happens to be the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, <laughs> he weighed in very poignantly yesterday and said, look, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, right, nonpartisan body, did a study and they declared exactly how this would impact the federal budget. So let's make sure we include this into the package because we can get it through reconciliation. So that's one of the main reasons people had said we got to take it out. Pramila Jayapal won the argument at the committee level. It's back in where it should be. Let's get this through right now. I think you're the first person who's ever mentioned the Senate parliamentarian on this show. Oh, well, again, in this era of, of what we can and cannot get through, a 50-50 Senate through the Reconciliation Project, we will be hearing a lot. We'll, we'll think we're in like the UK with the parliament system where they hear a lot <laughs> about the parliamentarian. Uh, in terms of uh, negotiating things through the legislature. So we'll hear a little bit more about it in this era. You noted how popular raising the minimum wage is. I've, I got some statistics on that. Two-thirds of the American public supports raising the minimum wage to $15, and that includes more than 40% of Republicans. And it doesn't just poll well. When it's been an initiative on ballots in states and cities, California, Washington pioneered this, Seattle pioneered it in Washington, but many states have now voted on it, most recently Florida. Whenever it's been on a ballot of a city or state, it has won. The increase in the minimum wage has won every referendum it's been put before the public with since 1998. So this, this is surefire the public wants this. Absolutely. And you know, John, if you are to receive $15 as a minimum wage and um, you are to work 40 hours a week 
uh, 50 weeks a year. How long do you have to work to earn a billion dollars if you have zero taxes <laughs> and zero expenditures? Have you ever done the math on that, John? I think this is a, a 15... Fifteen dollars minimum wage. I don't know. What's the answer? That thirty-three, roughly thirty-three thousand three hundred thirty-three years. Thirty-three thousand three hundred thirty-three years of working at minimum wage. Six, six times more than six times the length of human history, basically, or five, six times the length of human history. Now, if it's seven twenty-five an hour, that's <laughs> above sixty-six thousand years. So we're 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 really letting people have the capacity to dream here. <laughs> you know, reach their <laughs> become the, one of the billionaire class. And and I think the only other thing I would add on the on the fifteen dollar minimum wage is the number of people who would benefit from this. Apparently, it's it's tens of millions of people don't make fifteen dollars right now. Hey, that's that is for sure. In fact, it would lift many people even out of poverty. Uh, though it's hard to imagine how you do that at fifteen dollars an hour. But in some places, you know, again, where the cost of living is left. I saw that at least a million people would be lifted out of poverty just from this one measure, and it would help, yes, tens of millions of Americans. Again, this goes to working class communities, working class communities of color, and a lot of women, and women have especially been hit hard during the pandemic in terms of the impact on the economy. We will be following this closely in the weeks to come, but we also want to look at the big picture, the long-term problem of reviving American manufacturing. This is something that Biden has made Part of his economic plan, he announced it back in July, and he's beginning to take the first steps now. His plan involves cracking down on outsourcing, investing billions in research and development to develop especially the next generation of green technology, and then he wants to connect those to a massive jobs and infrastructure program. He says his goal is 5 million new jobs in manufacturing, He started just a week or two ago with an executive order that requires the federal government to buy more goods produced in the United States. The federal government, of course, is a huge market, buys, spends something like $600 billion annually on contracts. But of course, for many years, that's been open to foreign companies to bid on and lots of foreign companies can undersell American companies. So this should bring back a lot of outsourced manufacturing is forcing the federal government to buy American a good place to start on reviving American manufacturing, do you think? It's the the single largest purchaser in the world is the United States federal government. And so it's a great place to start. And um, U.S. manufacturing is down to about 11% of GDP. Um, That's as low as countries like Afghanistan at this point. It used to be up at about a quarter of GDP uh, or even higher than that back in the period around and right after World War II. Uh, we all know that there's been a huge exodus of manufacturing and just how uh, much manufacturing anchors a country. First of all, we saw it in terms of the social necessity of it around the supply chains related to the top of the pandemic where you weren't seeing any of these essential materials be produced within the United States. So it addresses those problems. But if you look at the countries in the global economy that are really stable, uh, let's leave China out of it, That because that's not stable only because it's grown so fast due to manufacturing anchoring its, uh, its economy. But if you look at a country like Germany, which has maintained its manufacturing base uh, with a very prosperous, stable middle-class society with very good social indices, you know, it's, it's really sort of old school 
capitalist theory, John. If you have capital investment in something like manufacturing, while it's true over the past four decades, there have been a lot of people exiting. But if you put the investment into setting up a manufacturing shop, that's a stable source of jobs um, and productivity in communities. People understand that. And the United States of America now has vast parts of the country that have the infrastructural setup to be able to be a part of the supply chain and they're absent to actual manufacturing shops. So this is a very, very promising sign that the Biden administration is highlighting this. Donald Trump really did bring the question of failed American manufacturing more foregrounded into the American political consciousness than recent politicians. And it's important to the Democratic Party and Joe Biden not only now maintain that sense of it being a priority, but actually do something unlike Trump. And I think that's this is a really good start from Joe Biden's regard. What's your assessment of emphasizing um, infrastructure repair and expansion as a generator of jobs and of stable manufacturing jobs, not just temporary construction jobs? Okay, well, okay. First of all, the American energy grid needs to be completely reconfigured into renewable and sustainable energy. This is a massive society-wide industrial project. Um, now, what achieves that is, of course, an expansion of certain forms of energy production, uh, and they require new parts. The parts that got made, probably 85, 75% of them, they're not going to be distinct factories. They're going to be the widgets that are made in, you know, basically high-tech um, construction, right? So who's going to produce those parts? Who are going to produce the parts for the supply chain? This can be the expansion of pre-existing manufacturing industries in the United States. And of course, also the establishment of new shops. And then a good portion of it is new technology, which will have to be newly developed at new shops. Now think about it in terms of the power of the American economy and how significant it is if this country leads the way in the manufacturing of the renewable and sustainable energy systems and all of the component parts that go into it rel relative to other countries in the world. This will be something that can anchor prosperity through a revitalized manufacturing base with good paying jobs. And by the way, these are high tech jobs. These are not your grandparents' manufacturing jobs. You know, these, this involves often state-of-the-art AI and robotics in terms of the, just the running of the manufacturing. Um, there also are very dynamic aspects of design that go into the component parts for these incredible machines that we're talking about to build renewable energy systems. This means there really should be a whole new wave of vocational training, at maybe at the community college level, at the high school level too. Again, these are not boring jobs. And by the way, there are all sorts of great uh, strategies to make these workplaces really anchored by uh, either entrepreneurs, and I'll get to something even more exciting for the left in a moment, who are very committed to the communities where the shops are being. We, we know the history. We know the history of the offshoring. Well, now we have an opportunity to really work with entrepreneurs who are committed to high wage jobs. We can, we can really encourage as the left that these be unionized jobs. Um, and then there's also the prospect of, and then, you know, we understand you got to raise the money to get something going, but there's the possibility of worker, worker ownership and there's also the possibility of worker ownership in shops where the old old ownership is wanting to move off or sell, and as opposed to selling and offshoring, that the workers can get involved in buying up the businesses and running them as worker cooperatives or worker collectives. This is an idea that is increasingly popular. 
And there are ways that this can be incentivized too through public policy. PDA is, has a partnership with an organization called Manufacturing Renaissance out of Chicago that is absolutely experienced with the real world effort to save existing manufacturing businesses in Chicago, which there are still thousands in greater Chicago area. A lot of them, again, are looking for new ownership and you can have worker ownership. You can have ownership from uh, entrepreneurs from communities of color because the ownership is still overwhelmingly white. Um, and so there's all sorts of ways that this can this can grow in progressive ways that can really help communities around the country. And Chicago is one place like that. There are places all across the Rust Belt. And also, there is the issue of the oil and gas industry workers and their need for a just transition out of jobs that should go the way of the dinosaur. Uh, so like a, a doubled uh, fossil fuel metaphor there. But it should go the way of the dinosaur. And, and these people need jobs. They're being told that the environmental movement is promising a just transition. Well, renewal of manufacturing targeted into the communities that are losing gas and oil jobs is a really important strategy uh, that labor unions can get behind, workers can get behind, communities can get behind. And I do think this is all something that the Biden administration is grasping. And I finally, I need to ask about the calendar, the time that all this is going to take in relation to the political calendar. Of course, we're already thinking about the midterm elections. Midterm elections, almost every time the party in power uh, loses seats in Congress. It's certainly possible, probably likely, the Democrats will lose this control of the Senate, and they even could lose control of the House where they don't have a very big margin. What would make a difference is big progress on jobs, on financial aid, and on, dare I say, progress towards restoring manufacturing. Do you think this can happen fast enough to affect the 2022 midterms? Well, it could. And first of all, the 2022 midterms in the Senate actually don't line up that poorly for the Democrats. You have open seats in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and now Ohio. Of course, one of the great champions of all of this is Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio. With him taking the lead, that could really put the wind in the sails of the Democratic nominee to replace the, in the election to replace Rob Portman, outgoing Republican senator from Ohio. In the House, of course, you're absolutely right. We have to show that there are policies from the Democratic Party that really boost the, the, pot, the, the prospects for working class Americans. Here's the thing. The next big moment for this is the infrastructure plan. That is the Recovery Act. You're going to see a combination National Infrastructure and Recovery Act that probably will be dropped and introduced to the world, dropped on and introduced to the world hours after the Relief Act that we spoke about in the first half of this interview passes through Congress. So the Biden administration is undoubtedly already working on uh, what will be in the Infrastructure and Broad Pandemic Recovery Act. The two are going to be combined. So right away, we're talking about green infrastructure. We're talking about reviving American manufacturing. And it speaks direct. If we can achieve on this front, yes, it will do wonders for the midterm. Alan Minsky, he's Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. Alan, great to have you on the show. Always great to be with you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener. 
talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk once again about TV in the age of the virus. And for that, we turn to our critic, Ella Taylor, longtime writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and NPR.org, among other places. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Hope I won't be as long-winded as what's-his-name defending our former president. Sigh. Well, I want to start today with a film called the a new film called the Mauritanian. It's uh, the story of Mohamedou Salahi, who was accused of the plotting the 9/11 attacks and held at Guantanamo Bay for six years without being charged for a crime. This film has special meaning for us because. Jodie Foster plays his attorney, Nancy Hollander, and Nancy Hollander was a guest on our show when The Diary, which is the basis of this movie, was was published several years ago. Let's talk about The Mauritanian. It's directed by Kevin MacDonald, who made a wonderful movie called The Last King of Scotland, uh, and also One Day in September, and so on, socially politically committed director who also knows how to direct a movie. It's based on the memoir by Mohamedou Ould uh, Slahi, who was, in fact, did join, briefly join Al-Qaeda, but uh, got out after a few months, which is one of the reasons that he was abducted from a family party by uh, the United States and then shipped off to Guantanamo Bay. I have not read the memoir, but um, this is a pretty searing account of what happened once he was imprisoned. In fact, it ended up being a great deal more than six years because even after uh, he was acquitted of being you know, in on 9-11, uh, he was kept for several more years before finally being released, which is quite extraordinary. Um, he is rather brilliantly played by the actor, the North African actor Tahar Rahim, who people may remen- remember from a, a French film called The Prophet. He's a wonderful actor. And he is portraying a man with an enormous emotional range of responses, um, all of which he captures rather brilliantly as he you know, goes through this incarceration and as the movie slowly reveals conspiracy, which was initiated by Donald Rumsfeld, but also um, uh, tortured quite horribly. We do see that um, as well. But this is prime. It's not really an action kind of movie, although there are scenes of of fairly graphic violence towards him, which need to be shown and need to be experienced. He is defended, as you said, by um, Nancy Hollander, also a real-life person who's played in the movie by Jodie Foster. Now, uh, I'm not a huge fan of Jodie Foster's acting. I think she has a very narrow emotional range quite limited, but she's absolutely perfect for this role to portray a woman who is shrewd and uncompromising, is on the side of of victims, but is also, she knows her law very well and she knows how to uh, defend him. She has an assistant who's played by Shailene Woodley, uh, who was in The Fault in Our Stars and all kinds of others, a fairly minor role. And in a rather strange piece of casting, um, Benedict Cumberbatch is cast as uh, the military prosecutor whose job it is to try and uh, convict 
Mohamedou, and uh, is an upright man who uncovers evidence of special methods which were decreed by Rumsfeld and involved quite horrible forms of torture uh, that were, of course, completely denied. Uh, that is the story, and it it's, you know, takes two hours to tell it, and there's not a single lost moment, I think, in the film. It's fairly straightforward filmmaking. Um, Cumberbatch, of course, I mean, he can imitate absolutely anybody, so despite the strange casting, he's very good in the role um, because he turns out to be uh, one of the few honest people uh, in the entire affair. And the interesting thing, I think, about the movie is that it emphasizes that uh, Hollander was defending as she was defending him, she was insisting that the, the issue was not was he guilty of something, but was he guilty of conspiring in the 9-11. Uh, the real Mohamedou, who we see at the end of the movie, uh, married an American lawyer after his release, which was, I think, like seven more years after um, he was acquitted, um, but was not able to join her because of restrictions on travel in his own West African country of, of Mauritania. He really is a, um, it's a character study in many ways. I think that's the strongest part of the movie because all this stuff is known now. And uh, it really is, I think perhaps he survived in ways that others didn't uh, mentally because he was co his capacity for many different uh, emotions really held him propped up. Part of it is a kind of traditional courtroom battle where Nancy Hollander, the real attorney played by Jodie Foster, is arguing an important case to all of us, which is that nobody in the United States should be held without being charged for a crime. And he was held for six years, that there's a right to trial. There's even a right to a speedy trial in the United States. And the only reason the government could get away with this was that they set up the courtroom and the prison outside the United States, but still in territory controlled by the United States. That was the evil genius of Guantanamo Bay. So Jodie Foster says, I'm defending the rule of law. And it doesn't matter if he's guilty or not. He deserves a trial. And then she gets to make this argument to Benedict Cumberbatch and also to the Shailene Woodley character, who is a more naive person. This Well, what if he is guilty? You know, well... Guilty people get a defense, too, and they certainly have, get a right to trial. I remember Shailene Woodley for playing Edward Snowden's girlfriend, Lindsay Mills, in the Oliver Stone film. And I would just add one other thing. Um, Salahi was kept at Gitmo for a total of 14 years, from 2002 to 2016. That covers the eight years of the Obama presidency. So this is one of these cases where Obama is not a hero of civil liberties. It's also worth mentioning, of course, that uh, in 2018, um, Trump signed an executive order keeping Guantanamo Bay open and that there are still 40 people detained. Um, Excellent. There. Well, thank you for reminding us about that. The Mauritanian will be opening in theaters this Friday, February 12th, and will be available on demand everywhere on March 2nd. And now it's time for our regular part two, something completely different. What do you have for us today in the department of something completely different? 
I have something terribly British for us now. It's a, a film that opened recently on Netflix uh, and is still there uh, called The Dig. And it's directed by Simon Stone, uh, who I believe is Australian. And the screenplay is by Moira Buffini, who's a, a notable screenwriter, British screenwriter. It's based on a book by John Preston that chronicles a real-life event that took place uh, in 1939 and uh, its legacy when um, a local, uh, a curator of a local Suffolk museum it was asked by the lady of the manor, um, whose name was Mrs. Pretty, <laughs> and she is pretty because she's played by Carrie Mulligan, who is also into archaeology and thinks that she has found something on her land. So he investigates and finds to his great astonishment the remains of uh, the hull of a ship, which at first they think is a Viking ship. In other words, a very long time ago, um, but turns out to be, uh, on further investigation, uh, an Anglo-Saxon ship from the 6th century. This is quite astonishing. When they bring in uh, a bunch of people from the British Museum to the absolute horror of the local curator, because he found it and in the movie at least, they take it over and they discover that it's also a burial chamber that contains lots of treasures. Uh, I've seen pictures. I, I did a little, pardon me, horrible pun digging myself um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, discovered that there is, are some significant revisions to the story. Some of them are trivial and some of them uh, have horrified a bunch of women. I'll talk about that in a minute. The local curator is a sort of geezerish geezer type, um, a man of few words, and he's played rather extraordinarily by Rafe Fiennes. <laughs> Not used to playing those kinds of of parts. I had recently seen him in the rewatch the the Constant Gardener, and this is a very different kind of uh, um, role, but one which he does to perfection. In part because he partly grew up in Suffolk, so he has that kind of West Country um, brogue down to a T. He's a man of few words, but he knows what he wants. And in the movie, um, it's been shaped into the story of how this happened has been shaped into an engaging and highly watchable, but romanticized and to an important, uh, in one important instance, distorted account of what happened. The significance of this find, because, you know, they're always finding things in, in, in Britain, uh, which has a very long history, is that um, it signifies it, it completely changes the archaeological conventional view uh, that the Anglo-Saxons were primitive people largely without culture because it turns out that they have this whole artistic history. And I've seen some of the pictures of the act, act, actual treasure and would like to possess some of it for my <laughs> awards nights outfits. It's gorgeous. 
in this in the movie they've turned it into a kind of david and goliath story with lots of romantic sub subplots which are apparently are completely fictional but um are loads of fun to watch uh one is that the that basil has this feud with the archaeologists the fancy archaeologists from the british museum who arrive very shortly to take over the investigation uh, another is the arrival of an expert named Peggy Pritchett, who's played by Lily James, currently a, a favourite young British actress. And she actually was an expert on many things, but she's presented as a rather naive young nymphette here, whose husband, um, again fictionally, is gay, is actually gay. That opens up an opportunity for another romantic subplot um, with the cousin of the lady of the manor who um, arrives to photograph the whole enterprise. And here comes uh, the omission that is making a lot of women archaeologists and others very mad, which is that the, the real life photographers of these and there's some beautiful photographs, which I also dug up, were two women. Two middle-aged women uh, photographers, very experienced and so on, uh, and they've been turned into a hunky young man who <laughs> provides some consolation to Peggy when her husband runs off with his gay lover. Uh, in fact, she sends him away. She's a very understanding young woman. So... Um, it is a very sentimental film, but it's enormously enjoyable to watch. Um, the Suffolk landscape is just beautiful. It's very well pho photographed. And Ray Fiennes is, is terrific. Um, Carrie Mulligan has been assigned a mystery um, fatal illness here just to add on a little bit more schmaltz. I'm not sure that the story actually needed much of this because in fact, it's quite an astonishing thing all by itself. When you see the hull of this ship, it's only the skeleton that's left, but it clearly is the backbone um, of an actual ship that was repurposed as a burial chamber for a VIP who has never been um, identified. But all these uh, artifacts are now sitting in the um, British Museum. I, I noticed that the, the, the first half of this film sets up a intriguing and deepening relationship between the aristocratic Mrs. Pretty and the working class Mr. Brown, Carrie Mulligan and Rafe uh, Fine. And, and we are led to wonder such different people. Will they ever get together? She invites him to dinner. But about halfway through the movie, they just say, oh, never mind, and instead focus on the good-looking young people and their uh, star-crossed uh, romance. So uh, I thought that they, uh, they sort of lost interest in the stars of the movie there about halfway through. Well, partly because if you're British, that would be a liaison that would be so improbable that, they, that you would react by saying, as if. Not because of the age gap, the significant age gap between the two of them, um, but because of the class difference. <laughs> so it's rather an upstairs, downstairs uh, situation, as you describe in the first half of the movie. And then it is dropped because they find some real young people to focus on. <laughs> And we, we must say one other thing. It's all in 1939 and the coming of the war overshadows everything. You know, the Nazis are about to invade Poland and Munich has been a failure in bringing peace in our time and the young people will go off and die. And, and that also is 
part of the emotional feel of this movie. Yes, and that that whole idea is harnessed. You know, I think that the treasure, buried treasure in the hull of ships sort of is a, you know, Britain carries on regardless throughout its history and so on. So um, it is a rather benign version. Uh, I gather that um, Brown did not have a feud with the British Museum guy. They got <laughs> along very well. In fact, that was probably his real companion in the in the movie. So that's The Dig. It's playing on Netflix. It's immensely entertaining and very British and tasteful. Just a couple minutes left for what else is happening on TV this week. Well, the African Diaspora International Film Fest, which is a regular event, um, is celebrating Black History Month with a bunch of films um, with no clear connection to each other, but um, all of them connected to the civil rights movement uh, one way or another or to more contemporary issues about race. And some of them are the sit-in, which we discussed on this show, um, in which Harry Belafonte uh, sat in on the Johnny Carson show in the 1960s. We talked about it then. So that's a chance to see it here. There's another film about Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, another one about Ella, Ella Baker, both of them, um, you know, important organizers within the civil rights movement. And there is also a documentary about the story of Lover's Rock, which was one of the, the films in the Small Axe series. I have not seen it, but it's one I'm planning um, to see. You can find that the tickets are $7 per film, and you can find it, the festival, on uh, nyadiff.org, um, which is the website of the African Diaspora uh, film Fest. So the African Diaspora International Film Festival, February 12th to 15th. Lots of good uh, movies, some of which we've uh, talked about here. I'm sorry, our time is up. Ella Taylor is our regular TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. You're very welcome, John. I enjoyed it. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Aniel Zuberi Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.